0: Gentlemen, can I please have your attention? Daniel
1: you and Greetings, your listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. I'm very excited about today's guest. Um, unlike a, a certain legal podcaster who used to have something to do with the Dispatch, uh, today's guest is not entirely dead to me um, uh, former former dispatch colleague uh, still AI colleague but he has gone off to the uh, private sector to you know I don't know be able to supersize his meals at McDonald's for all time now or something uh, but uh, delighted to have him I'm talking of course about uh, Klon Kitchen you are now a muckety-muck at something called Beacon Global Strategies. I rely, all full disclosures are stipulated and entered into the record, yada, yada, yada. Welcome back.
0: Big Daddy J. happy to be back. Good to hear from you.
1: Good to have you. Um, Big Daddy J cannot stick. It is, <laughs> it, is, it is stricken from the record. <laughs> all right, so uh, um, we were talking, you're part of a text thread that, you know, um, you, me, and Steve, and that dead guy, Um, are um, part of, and we were talking about AI and you were like, maybe I should come on and talk about AI. So I said, that's a great idea. Why don't you come on and talk about AI? Let's start globally, you know, big picture, cosmic, 30,000 feet, whatever whatever metaphor you want to use. What is your view on AI right now?
0: So I think we're at a a pretty interesting moment. Um, The thing that's captured everyone's attention, rightly so, I think, are what's called these large language models or these foundation models. And this is the stuff that... um, really broke into the, the public awareness back in November of last year with OpenAI's chat GPT. Um, and since then, they've rolled out a new version, GPT-4, that has proven uh, to be very, very capable. And so capable and so rapidly, frankly, adopted by the public that it spurred um, other AI developing companies to kind of kick out their versions of these of these large language models, in an effort to um, kind of benefit from the, the large public awareness and, and and adoption, there's obviously a lot of marketing. There's always a lot of marketing around this stuff, and there's definitely a hype cycle, uh, and and we're we're smack dab in the middle of it. Nevertheless, we should we should just pause for two seconds
1: on that because I think people need to understand that. Yep, go. Like I talk to people in the tech industry, not a tenth as much as you do, but like the thing I always hear from people is like a lot of this is both the negative and the positive stuff is a valuation play where, and you saw this, like, I guess the last um, quarter or whatever, you know, the anything AI related went up, everything else sort of went down the high tech area. And this buzz is, is doesn't mean there's no substance to it. Right. I mean, there's a stake to the sizzle, but like some of this stuff, people are being played on the upside and on the downside from competitors and whatnot to, to freak out about this. And, um, and there's just a financial, there's a financial aspect to it that the press doesn't talk about as much as it probably should. That's all. I just wanted to make it clear what you were talking about there.
0: Well, and that's 100% true. And and a way that that's played itself out in the public kind of policy space right now already is not too long ago, there was this letter signed by, you know, a a bunch of of AI pioneers and including people who um, are leading the businesses who are generating these capabilities, you know, calling for a pause. Um, And we can get into how um, I think that is a bad idea and also unworkable. Um, But um, I recently ran across this phrase um, on the negative hype cycle side where someone said, um, let's see, hold on, it was, John Van Neumann responding to Robert Oppenheimer's famous hand-wringing, you know, post nuclear development. And he said, some people confess guilt to claim credit for the sin. Mm. And I definitely think that that's on play here uh, for a lot of folks. Um, Oh my gosh, this thing is so powerful. This thing I've created is so powerful. We really need to be careful with it and you know, run for the hills. Um, That's definitely happening. And that just creates excitement and, um, At the same time, I do think that we are looking at the emergence of a a technology that is now usable at scale that has very real national security implications, which I'm sure we can get into, um, but also very real positive implications, including economic implications, which are some of the the things I'm most excited about when we think about these large language models, uh, about I, I feel a bit like we've been thrown a lifeline uh, when I think about the economic implications of this and the national security outworkings of all that.
1: So the, just on the technical side, something I have not been clear about, are all of the AI thing, you know, programs, doodads that we are talking about, are they all large language models or is that just one subset of it? And how does the large, if so, which is my sense of it, right, is that the large language model that's the chat GDP thing, which is uh, associating and you know, finding patterns of words next to other words and, and blah, 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 blah. Um, but like, that's not the kind of AI that's going to figure out new chemical compounds and medicines or um, new alloys, right? I mean, so the, what are the different kinds of AI that we're talking about
0: here? So they actually, the, those things are related. So uh, one, all large language models or foundation models are AI, but not all AI is large language models and foundation models, right? Okay. So there's there's lots of subdisciplines within artificial intelligence and different types of applications and even different ways that these things are kind of built and encoded. Um, the the thing that has captured the most attention right now are these foundation models, like ChatGPT and Google's Bard and um, and others. In one sense, yes, it's um, what they've done is they've they've what's called indexed off the internet so they've they've essentially consumed the internet and using that information they're able to predict the most likely word to follow in a sentence based on context but it's actually doing more than that there's a type of inference that's going on and so i mean you'll appreciate this cuz i know that you, you you love words and and the, words are an expression of thought and so when one of these models starts doing the work of stringing sentences together, it's not like they're thinking per se, because they're not an entity like that. But it's more than just, oh, that's a coherent sentence, right? It's, It's able to infer meanings and implications and connections that as we consume what they're giving us, feels like thought. So it's functionally more than just, oh, that's a good sentence. It's actually, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm beginning to, like there's a reason why the algorithm is predicting that the next word in the sentence is this. It's because the thoughts that have generated all of that content out on the internet are underlying all of that. And so that, that's, that's partly what's going on. So that's, that's one. So it's, it's more than just predictive. Two, what we have found, and this has been the really interesting thing, is within artificial intelligence research, there's this thing called emergent capabilities. And that is when essentially an AI system does something it was never taught to do. Uh, and we've seen that. So in the case of one of these LLMs, for example, let's say you uh, you built an algorithm whose purpose and you taught it how to do advanced calculus, and then it taught itself Spanish. We're seeing those types of emergent capabilities uh, throughout these, these various offerings. And so as they get applied to things like biotechnology, for example, Google's DeepMind group uses a, a, a similar system called AlphaFold, and it does predictive generation on protein structures. And it does it with a, a specificity and an accuracy and a speed that we've never come anywhere close to approaching. And so that's like a massive, massive improvement using one of these foundation models for essentially every aspect of biotechnology.
1: We're going to spend a little time doing the questions people ask, would ask me at a barbecue kind of
0: approach to this,
1: right? Um, before we get into, you know, deep philosophical issues. Like, I'm sure you saw this case with the lawyer who did his research on chat and, um, Chat, he said, you know, give me the cases that support this position. They talk about it on, on AO um, and give a better summary of it. But basically, this lawyer asked ChatGPT for a bunch of cases that supported his position. He then did his, you know, homework by saying, Hey, ChatGPT, is this true? <laughs> and <laughs> ChatGPT said, Yes, it's true. And it turns out that no, these cases weren't real. ChatGTP made up and an effect made up some or all of the cases in one way or another, and then when asked, it said, "No, no, no, they're real." Why the hell would the program do that? I mean, like, like I mean, again, why would you want a program? I have to assume if you're smart enough to make an artificial intelligent program, you you be smart enough that when you get asked the question, "Are these quotes factual?" you could have just some sort of subroutine that always kicks in and says, you know just as like a legal disclaimer, always check these quotes against other sources, yada, 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 yada. Don't say, oh yeah, it's, no, it's totally true. Cause I've asked ChatGTB playing around for quotes from things. And some of the quotes are close to accurate. And some of the quotes are just directionally kind of like, oh, that sounds like something Friedrich Hayek would say, but he never said it.
0: Why, why would you have that function? Why isn't that fixable? Well, I think it ultimately is fixable. We just haven't done it yet. Um, or at least it's it's largely addressable, you know, one, that lawyer, that was malpractice on his part, right? Like that's not the way you you, that is not the way you responsibly use these capabilities at this stage in the game. Now, I do think we're probably, it won't be long before we're there, but the way those things, so sometimes the completely made up stuff is often referred to as hallucinations on these foundation models. But the way that happens is, is because as I said, these things have been indexed off the internet. And so somewhere out there, Actually, in multiple places out there, someone has either falsely attributed a quote to someone uh, or has implied a quote. Or has paraphrased a quote. As
1: Aristotle might say, blah, blah, exactly blah. Exactly right. But it's exactly not a quote. Right. right.
0: That's right. And then that gets commingled with, frankly, just some ghost in the machine stuff where we haven't kind of tightened up the, the, the weights and measures on the models themselves to be kind of self-correcting sufficient to the task. So that's how that happens, and everybody should be aware of that, and they should use these systems um, with that in mind. It, it is no safe bet um, to to just take anything that one of these these programs offers you as gospel. That's just not safe. Um, they can, however, be very helpful in in kind of starting from something more than a blank page, and I do think I do think that. Law firms will be one of the, the the quickest adopters on these things and and refiners of these capabilities because the the potential benefit. I mean, the for example, if you just give it really solid content, so you know the content's good, you point it at stuff that you have high competence in, you limit it to that, and then say, write me a brief tailored for this judge. We're you can get a pretty good start with that capability as it exists right now. And this is going, I think where we will be a year from now, we will look at where we are currently as quaint.
1: So, I mean, I, again, I've only sort of dorked around a bit with chat I I keep, uh, your former colleague, my colleague, uh, uh, Rachel Aramore had this idea that whenever I'm, because I'm constantly trying to figure out what to write the G file about. And, um, She's like, why don't you just ask ChatGPT to write a G file in your voice and then criticize it? And the thing is, it's not good enough or bad enough to make it fun to do. I mean, it's like, you'd have to be like really into like style guide stuff to like get why it's off. And, you know, and some of the things are stupid. Um, And I've mentioned this on here before, but I once asked ChatGPT, who is Jonah Goldberg, and it informed me that I, that Jonah Goldberg is someone who writes mostly about Jewish issues, which I'm. Fact check, not really true. Um, <laughs> um, I was like, you gotta, you gotta index John Podhoretz to this thing if you think that's true. Um, but um, I can see it where, where I can definitely see it for like my line of work being useful. Is like I once did this where I was about to go do TV, and um, I was like, give me five arguments against industrial policy, and four of them, I mean, none of them were new to me, right, and um, but, like, if you're in you know middle aged guy who like a lot of a lot of issues come up where you can't remember all the reasons why something is stupid. It was a good little index card reminder of like, oh, yeah, here are the five arguments, right? I mean, and like, but you actually have to know the subject area well enough to recognize why these arguments are good to have as a as a mechanism of conjuring recall about the examples that you would use. To say, you know, you know, to to back up these declarative statements, because it also gives you five, you know, somewhat anodyne reasons why industrial policy is is good, right, or bad. I mean, you can just ask it to do whatever you want, but it's a good memory trigger thing. And and in that sense, I think like the amplification thing, the augmentation part of people who've actually done their homework, there's some some use there. So, like, if you're a good lawyer, you can have you can use it to sort of remind you of stuff or point out interesting things. But sometimes being pointed out that something's wrong, being you know, sometimes even being told wrong things is useful because it creates a, the irritation creates a pearl in your head kind of
0: thing. That's right. Well, and you know, so just to put that in in context, and I'll give you an example of how I've used it. If I were, instead of going to ChatGPT and were to call you and say, hey, Jonah, give me five good arguments on why industrial policy is stupid, I could get essentially a similar outcome like, Oh yeah, for the, Oh, that's right. Yeah. I knew that, but that's, I like the way Jonah said that. And then that last one was like, "Eh, I'm not really buying that. Right. So it's, it's one of these things where as we think about the utility of these capabilities, I think, uh, baselining them on uh, just baselining them appropriately is, is helpful for understanding their value or lack thereof. Um, one thing that I found helpful is, um, you know, I, I tend to think in arguments and I have opportunities like these to, to talk or to, to, to write notes to, to folks. And so I, I will now consistently type like outline a thought or an argument using a series of, of um, topic sentences, you know, these kind of declarative statements, and then kick it over to GP, GPT or, or some other capability and, and ask it to, you know, kind of lace these thoughts into coherent narrative right? And it, and it it saves me some time. And I've even said in the voice of Klein Kitchen, there's, you know, enough but not a ton of, of stuff with my name on it, nothing approaching anything like you have. Um, and it, it gets, you know, maybe 60% there. But I find that helpful in terms of saving me time. Now, I would never, like, copy and paste that and just kick it out under my name. Um, but I will use it to kind of save me some time and efficiently string my thoughts together as I'm getting ready for a TV hit or a podcast or just a conversation with someone.
1: Um, before we move on, the the one of the oldest concepts in computer programming, going back to punch cards, is garbage in, garbage out, right? You're younger than me. You may not be fully aware of this, but from time to time, people are wrong on the internet.
0: I know I spent a lot of time trying to fix that.
1: <laughs> and 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 sometimes they're wrong at scale. Like and and to be fair, like as someone who's sort of a big fan of, you know, my own quirky revisionist history, you know, why the liberal consensus is wrong about all sorts of things, major mucky muck historians I think can get wrong and be subjected to groupthink too. There's something special about the the short-term memory of the internet um where like if it's in a book I mean, actually, that's a, just a factual question. Before I go on, does do, does ChatGTV or these other LLMs do they scour up books too, or is it just websites?
0: No, no, it's 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 everything that's essentially been indexed on the web. So you know, Google has this huge effort of digitizing you know all the books.
1: Right, but it's hard to get to some of the books as someone who's tried very many times to get at you get snippet views and previews and that kind of stuff. But sometimes it's hard to get the full book. Is all of that stuff in the large language models?
0: Well, there's different large language models, so different. But you know, you take something like an OpenAI ChatGPT or Google's Bard, and yes, I, th- I think you're approaching. It's it's hard for me to say all, but yeah, okay, that's good to know. Yeah, you're getting a lot. Yeah, I mean, I, I I don't see a lot of evidence in the, of that when I when I poke around on it. Well, this is the IP challenge too. I think some of that is actually deliberately constrained, where they may actually have the opportunity to do it but they're still working out the details in terms of IP protections and liability.
1: So regardless, not only is the, let's let's put it this way, if elite culture, if academia, if journalism leans left, right? Not as far left as a lot of people on the right think, but, it's, but more left than a lot of people on the left think. And ch- all ChatGPT J- is doing is scooping up those bits of, information and editorial content like so much of plankton for a giant whale um what goes in is going to come out the other end right and then you add on the secondary thing where apparently there are like some woke safeguards to prevent it from saying things that offend people of a more leftist sen- sensibility do you think that stuff is here to stay is it, I mean, it's kind of a job protection racket for people like me because it's like if you told AI that it cannot produce the results of a right-wing columnist, but it can produce the results of a left-wing columnist. But that just sort of seems unsustainable and unjustifiable in the long run.
0: Uh, so what you're describing is real. Uh, it, it, it is something that, I mean, look, the, the internet's a big place. A lot of this depends on how different, source, different sources of data are, are weighted and valued within a particular model. And that kind of weighting and valuation is actually what's going to vary amongst the various different models. I, I, think, I think all of the cultural presuppositions that you've described are real and present. At the same time, there's a real motivation for all of those who are developing these large language models to provide a capability that pleases the most people, that that actually provides a meaningful solution to the largest group of users possible, all within a broader framework of guardrails. And this is where it's going to be. It's not only social media, it's all tech, but social media is the thing that's kind of front of mind for people. But all within the same uh, strictures of, of what we've seen develop around social media in terms of what's safe, what's unsafe, um, what's you know hate speech and what's not and and look so so long as the the broader culture is having those uh, definitional conversations that will certainly be present in all of these in all of these tools. I mean the underlying point that you're making though about these things are only as good as the the data itself. I think that's certainly true and on the on the foreign policy and national security side that raises all kinds of concerns about what we call data poisoning um, as a whole strategy. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, I hear that and it's a hundred percent real concern, but I think so much of, of the utility of this can occur largely outside of those things or at least not decisively encumbered by them that I'm still like, yeah, I think this is still good. I think this works.
1: Yeah, no, like, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sort of like one of these, uh, stock managers who goes on CNBC, I'm just talking my book, right? So we've basically been talking about, you know, the stuff that affects me, writing and language stuff and whatever. And that's why I wanted to get into the difference between the sort of the chat GTP model versus these other models. So since you brought up national security, let's talk about national security. The, the story that got everybody freaking out about Skynet panic Um, At the beginning of the week or the end of last week, I can't remember which, turned out not to be true as far as I understand it. Just the
0: Air Force drone?
1: Yeah, the Air Force drone that had been programmed to maximize its mission of taking out enemy SAMs. But because a human operator had the ability to abort missions, the AI uh, drone decided it needed to kill its operator. Then the the story first got called real and then it got called, well, it was a simulation. And then it got called a thought experiment this is the last time I saw. So I mean, it didn't happen. Someone was talking and say, wouldn't it be wild if, which is a little different than it actually happened. But more broadly, like, what do you think about that story? What do you think it's how it speaks to the concerns out there? And what are as a, you know, as a person who once had something to do with some three letter agencies, uh, what are the exciting things about, AI for national security purposes.
0: Well, when that story broke, I was like, uh, I, I, I definitely had some skepticism. Uh, it just sounded too Hollywood, too made for TV. I was like, uh, that doesn't sound right,
1: but not like the enemy space, not like the alien spaceship, which we've captured with uh, crew, dead crew intact. That's totally true. Look, I mean, yeah. look, that's different.
0: That's <laughs> exactly. I mean, I, I will suggest a brief aside on that whole story. I read through that, and you know they they spend. So for the audience, just in case of those who don't know, there's a, some reporting about a whistleblower coming out of the U.S. intelligence community who claims uh, that the United States government has both intact and partial fragments of, um, you know, aircraft or spacecraft that are not of human origin. And the, the when I when I read that, I I, I confess it was shared with me. And I read the article and they spend a lot of time establishing this whistleblower's kind of credibility. They, they list like, the, you know, his, his performance evaluations and, you know, and look, he, he's held interesting positions and he's got, you know, performance evaluations. Now in DOD, a performance evaluation, you know, if you're not walking on water, you're, you're dead. But I read something like that and I have all kinds of, of priors that are skeptical of the whole thing, but you are just kind of like, Ugh. What is this? Like, I don't think it's what's being described, but what is this really? And and we're putting a lot of effort into these unexplained phenomena, you know, vehicle type things. And I would love to get the brief, you know, like, okay, what is real? Anyways, things that I'm excited about in, in, in terms of artificial intelligence. Look, I'm not I'm not overly worried. It will be disruptive. I'm not overly worried about AI taking jobs. Kind of fundamentally, I think the future is humans running with AI, and I think we're going to be um, very efficient. I think the best way to understand these new capabilities, both in terms of the opportunities and the risks, is that they pour gas on the fire. So, on the risk side, I think I don't know that there are truly novel threats, but they definitely take existing threats and make them either larger in scale or Evolving more rapidly and efficiently. So it's not that there's a new cyber attack that comes through AI, it's just that, that you know, traditional cyber attacks are made more efficient and, and difficult. But then on the same side, so is the defense. So using an AI on the offensive and defensive sides, you know, I don't know that it cancels it out, but you know, there's there's applications on both sides. Um when I when I get when I get particularly excited is on the capability side. Uh, I do think that uh, the United States, I've talked about this previously, that, you know, there's, there's no country who's more technologically leveraged than the United States. Our, what, what cybersecurity folks will call our threat surface, you know, our, our, our vulnerability to attack is larger than anybody else's. And our ability to, to, to monitor and defend that uh, is, is constrained. Now, we're really good at it, but I mean, it's just such a big problem. I think AI offers real opportunity to meaningfully kind of get back in the game, and we've been we've been behind the ball now for a couple of years, where frankly a bunch of different bad guys have been eating our lunch. And I think uh, as AI continues to develop, we may actually be able to operate at a level where we we meaningfully move uh, the advantage um, back to our side. We're not there yet, but but I'm hopeful. I, I really do think that we're we're approaching that possibility. Beyond that, though. I think that the economic implications of, of these large language models and, and everything that's gonna follow um, is so real and, and, and has the potential of being so sustained and, and causing such massive improvements in, uh, in efficiency and productivity that I feel like we may actually be able to make the types of investment in our, uh, in our military uh, in our um, industrial and innovation bases that all of us national security people have been saying for years and years and years, we are woefully, woefully behind. And everyone tends to respond with like, yeah, but the economics, we like, how do we spend that kind of money? I think we may actually be able to generate a domestic economy that supports that uh, with, while simultaneously kind of you know, benefiting the the broader population. And so I, I'm, I'm really encouraged by that. If I can just give you an example of what I mean, and then I'll shut up for a second. More than $11 billion has been invested in AI startups in the month of May alone. That's 80% more than May in the previous year, right? Um, and like, that's just starting. Now, you and I talked about how right now all the all the economic boom is happening in this kind of one narrow sliver of the tech industry but i believe that that the benefits and and the applica- the applications of all this are going to be migrating through the tech economy and the broader economy in relatively short order and so i expect that kind of profitability and um and kind of sweet sweet goodness to be spreading quickly and and i really it it, it makes me very encouraged about what's on the on the horizon if we can manage this well
1: Okay, so I I, I, I want to get into this, the economics argument of it, and I, I get what you're saying in that if you can get the kind of scale and efficiencies at scale and and increases of um, productivity at the margins that a lot of AI boosters think we can get, uh, we can actually pay for the, the bullets and bombs and things that we need to do on the national security side. I, I get that argument. I think it's a good argument. But just staying on the national security side for just a second here, does it make sense to put AI into a drone? What does an AI drone do that a human drone doesn't do? Does it make sense to have AI piloted planes, which does that make them drones now? I mean, like, is there is there where my friggin killer robots, I guess, is my point is like, is that a thing or is that just the sci fi part of this as part of the hype?
0: No no I think that so yeah so I've actually been a little bit countercultural on this where you know it, it's very popular in national security circles to talk about AI but then say but we shouldn't have killer robots we should have not no, no automated you know death machines uh, <laughs> to phrase to phrase it one way. Um, I'm I appreciate the sensitivities. I feel like that's inevitable um, and so I want to do it first. And so let me give you a very concrete example of what I mean. Let's, let's flash forward. Let's call it, I don't know, let's say two decades. And if you're telling me, all right, now, Clun, I've got one of these, you know, um, Boston Dynamics Atlas robots, these ones that you see on YouTube dancing and doing flips and everything. Right. Um, And you can, and this thing's got an AI on top of it and it can, and it's got a gun and I can send it into a, um, into a hostage situation. And it can go through the door and do immediate or near immediate, certainly way faster than a, than a, than a human can target identification and neutralization with less risk to the good guys or to the innocent, which there's no reason to believe that an AI enabled robot would not be able to do right. I mean, facial recognition, speed processing, you know, all of it is all in the robot's favor. All with that. So, so better mission accomplishment, um, lower loss of innocent life or or damage to even property, and I don't have to risk one of our people going through the door first. Why would I not do that? Of of, of course I would do that. Now, there's a lot to get over between now and, and then in terms of you gotta you've got to develop and then prove out all those capabilities. But everything I just described is well within scope of reality. That's not that's not sci-fi. That's just a matter of kind of application and refinement at this point. Um, you mentioned drones. Um, we're going to get to the point where number one, no matter what we do, bad guys are going to be doing these things. And that is going to greatly increase the, the speed and scale of challenges that we face to the point that we will require AI enabled defensive capabilities just to address the speed and scale of the threat. Right? So we're going to have super smart AI enabled hypersonic missiles coming out on our ships And we're going to have to have super smart AI-enabled defensive capabilities to identify, track, engage, and destroy those things coming at us. And we're not always going to have time for an individual to be there to push the button because, you know, they're stealth and we won't know them until the last 30 seconds. Right. So this is the kind of thing that is inevitable. Now, all of the concerns that come up with that are legit and real and need to be engaged. But to me, it's just, um, it's a bit Pollyannish to believe that we're going to somehow avoid that or that we even should, Uh, you know, it's the, it's the, it's the automated cars conversation. Like the first time an automated car hits a pedestrian, like that's a problem. That, I mean, that is a, that is a massive problem, but on the sheer numbers of it, when it's 82% 82% less likely to do so than a human driver. Like that's real. And, and I don't know that it does society good to ignore that. Um, if most people understood how much of their commercial air fl- airline flight was automated, they would be surprised. Um, but you know, they, they trust themselves to that every day, all day long. And there's a reason why, uh, our planes don't fly out, fall out of the sky. And that's one of the key reasons. I remember, uh,
1: mucking mucking some of this 15 years ago
0: 10 years ago i can't remember
1: a long time ago um was to, on the automated car thing he was like look they're going to figure out the technology of automated cars uh or driverless cars long before they figure out the uh insurance problems and um which is what i always thought was a really helpful way to think about it because it 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 kind of gets at the first of all, the common law issues, right? About who's the, like, the idea that, like, if I'm in a driverless car and my driverless car hits an old lady, I mean, that's terrible. But why am I to blame? Like, why should I have to pay insurance on something that a computer did that's run out of a massive data center somewhere? Um, like, I shouldn't have to, I shouldn't be on the hook for the liability on that because I had as much control over what that car was going to do as the lady was hit or somebody in Cleveland. Right. And, um, and I think that like those kinds of issues, let's put it this way, chat GPT legal will be used a lot trying to figure out a lot of those kinds of issues. Cause, yep. um, and I don't know what the, I, I currently don't know what the st- current state, of, like what is the current state of thinking in this? If you're in driverless mode in a Tesla and it hits somebody, is it, are, are you on the hook for
0: it? My understand. so number one, we're exceeding my specific expertise on this, but my understanding is like, yeah, you're not absolved. I'll leave it there because I don't want to overstate what I know. But yeah, I don't think that you're you're absolved.
1: We don't, I don't think we truly have, I mean, like you made the choice of going driverless,
0: right? Or that kind of thing. Yeah. You assume liability by making the, the choice. Yeah. Although we do have autonomous taxis. I mean, we are deploying autonomous taxis. So that's an interesting. But presumably
1: autonomous taxis don't have an immigrant with a hack license who's, owns the cab, right? It's some company and they're taking the insur the, the liability for the whole thing.
0: Well and you can think you can even think from the insurance perspective, like, okay, yeah, some of this is foggy, but the the actual risk that the insurance company is assuming with an automated vehicle versus a human driven vehicle is actually lower. And so they're like, yeah, okay, we'll figure it out. I'll 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 take the risk because it's so much lower.
1: Right. Right.
0: Um
1: okay so on the economic stuff. Um I'd seen it already. I hadn't read the whole thing and I'm still not quite done with it. But the, you sent me prior to this, the Mark Adresin, which we'll put in the show notes. I think it's good. I think it's overly Pollyannish about how I think he literally says um, it's going to
0: save the world. Why AI will save the world.
1: Yeah. So like I, I'm, as, as as a philosophically principled opponent of, of almost all enthusiasm, I am um, I'm, 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 i don't go that far, but I think it makes a lot of good points. and. Um, and I, I, and I think his Baptist and bootlegger stuff, which is one of my obsessions, uh, has a lot of merit and all the rest, but where I think, and this is what I want to ask you is like, where I think he's too dismissive, right? I agree with him. There's this thing called, was it? The, uh, lump labor theory, right? Which, ha- which is an argument that comes up every time there's a technological innovation, which says that some technology is going to replace labor. Um, In a certain industry, a certain field, you know, the Luddites with the mills or whatever. um, And those workers had one defined role. They can't learn another job. They can't do another job. No new jobs will be created for them to be filled into because it's a static pie kind of thing. And I think he's right about that historically and all that. That said, and this is something that comes up all the time when we talk about like the push towards globalization and, and, and free trade and all that is that these kinds of disruptions do create losers. And in the side like you in over a hundred year period, the losers kind of like vanish into the statistical background. But if you're a 52 year old, you know, guy who's been replaced by a robot, um, or a key, you know, or a, a tablet at a, you know, Jiffy Lube or whatever, it's not obvious that you're going to come out better because of these kinds of things. And I think that dismissiveness is politically problematic, if not morally problematic. And it comes up all the time.
0: Yeah. So I think you just hit the nail on the head. So number, uh, number one, I do recommend people read it, not because I agree with everything he said, but because I do, I do think that he um, Andreessen, I think he does do a good job of pushing back on some of the hyperventilating. I think he does explain in some interesting detail about some of the positive outcomes, although understand, as we started this conversation with, um, he's not a disinterested party, right, in, in this conversation. Um, I, yeah, but I think when he talks about the macroeconomic realities of all this and where it all kind of shakes out, that makes sense on a spreadsheet. It, but we don't live on a spreadsheet alone. There are real political dynamics that have to be factored in. In a just society and a, and a, and a good, and a good government will consider those things. It, it, it can't just be like, Hey, look, you know, I know 20% of you guys are really going to get the boot here, but you know, ultimately we're all going to be okay. And you should just be okay with that. that. That doesn't work. I do think that that's navigable. Uh, I, I, I don't have good answers to it. Uh, I don't think that government is particularly well suited to kind of solve the problem. I don't think it's ever demonstrated a real capacity toward that end. Um, but i do think that our political leaders are going to have to understand that as a real political variable and and what i think most likely they will be able to do that would be helpful would just be clear the hurdles for society to kind of heal itself you know for 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 you know industry has has every reason in in my view to to take actions that would enable a, a deeper, more capable, more productive labor market, and we've seen companies do that. I mean, they look at challenges like the fact that we're not producing the type of um, engineering expertise that that we need, either hard engineering or software engineering or whatever and you know, and everybody likes to turn to some type of government educational program, and I have some sympathy for for trying to encourage some of that, but generally speaking none of those have ever been proven to be truly like effective at a large scale but what some companies are doing is they're just taking it upon themselves and partnering even with like local junior colleges and establishing scholarships or whole schools and sending their own people through them and building the workforce that they need now that, that doesn't that's not big enough currently to address the macro needs over the long term but i feel i feel more comfortable with that than than other things so all that to say there will be losers. I don't think that that number is going to be quite as big as, um, as as people think, and I think I don't think it will be as immediate as as people tend to portray it. Um, I think the vast majority of people will actually learn to run with these machines, and that that may actually open up new capabilities. So. You know, I, I hate the retort like, hey, dude, learn to code as, as an answer to some of these concerns. But, you know, you take, let's just take an example of um, of some, some of the image generating technology. I've I played around with some of this stuff. And it's what's called low code or no code capability. Meaning you don't have to be, a you know, an engineer, software engineer. Well, there are lots of really creative people out there who can't draw. But they know, but they can learn how to prompt one of these things and generate truly amazing media and, and other content. And that was an entire sector of work that was never open to them, or at least was much. The, the barriers to entry were much higher, to where the the, the relative barrier to entry now is, is is actually quite low. And if if they're able to kind of evolve and and engage that they may actually be able to do work that they find more meaningful and even more profitable that they would not have been able to do otherwise.
1: Yeah, so like I, I, I kind of come down the same side of this. I, I think if people are looking at it sort of from the wrong end in some ways. It's like, so when you say you don't like when people say learn to code, that's the thing about AI, the potential of AI is that you don't have to learn to code. You know, and there's, I used to have good examples of this um, cause I used to be really interested in it. Um, sometimes academic disciplines get taken over by specific theories of the discipline. Right. And so, um, 40 years ago, I think academic, uh, philosophy got taken over by, um, and I'm getting this anecdote wrong. I apologize. Uh, by, by the logic crowd, right. Formal logic you know and so like there were certain subdisciplines of philosophy certain departments of philosophy that if you scored badly on the entrance exams that made it more likely you'd be accepted because they thought the the formal logic thing was keeping out the deconstructionists or whoever kind of thing um i think a lot of like and this is just my suspicion a lot of the technical schools it's sort of like my problem with Here's a good analogy. I actually have a really good ear for foreign languages. I think there's something in my brain that's adaptable to it. And if I spend enough time living someplace or hanging out someplace, I can pick up phrases really well, but I am terrible at formal grammar. I, I still can't tell you exactly what like a, you know, the, the, the pluperfect perfect is or any of that kind of crap. Right. And like, and, and like memorize the gerund form and like, I don't know what you're talking about, you know? And, um, and I always thought that like, The way you should teach language, especially to young people, should have nothing to do with the grammar, right? I mean, like, human beings, they don't learn their primary language by learning these formal back of the, you know, the the back of the room, back of the box kind of coding things about it. You know, here are the different, you know, cases and genders and whatever. They learn it by just absorbing. That's how our brains evolved. And um, anyway, so it seems to me like there's a lot of professions that have professional gatekeepers that require technical master, you know, expertise and mastery of very technical stuff, whether it's in engineering, in math, in programming and all that, that is a barrier to entry to sort of creative associational thinkers who, you know, I mean, like, I mean, Einstein, you know, at least according to lore, you know, was, you know, math was a problem for him getting into formal physics. You know, I think that's been a little exaggerated, at least that's my understanding. But still, I think in principle, that kind of thing applies. And what ChatGPT or not ChatGPT, but AI does is it lowers the technical expertise you need while allowing people with the high concept abilities to make it through, right? And like I used to be a television producer and we always used to say, if I knew how to hit the right buttons, I wouldn't need the editor to do it for me. Well, now in terms of television editing, the buttons are really easy to master. So you don't need television editors for a lot of the low end stuff. You need them for the really high end stuff. This still means that a lot of people in the middle of the economy, I think are going to take it in the neck in an economy that rewards the highly creative, the highly conceptual thinkers. And I don't think we should be as dismissive about all of that. I mean, getting rid of, I don't want to invoke, this stuff and get Jim Pethakukas to come storming in here like the Kool-Aid man but like if you could get rid of 8 million truck drivers tomorrow and have a massive increase in productivity i'm still not sure it would be worth it in terms of the cultural and social upheaval that would come with it
0: so i agree with everything you just said and I, I, for, for for the gatekeepers i think the realization is is dawning the barbarians are at the gate i mean the 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 adoption rate so one thing that businesses are dealing with on on these types of capabilities, you know, with 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 some technologies or, or with most technologies as they've been integrated into to work, it's been top driven. You know, the the company makes a decision that okay, we're going to use email now, so everybody start using email, and this is how we're going to communicate. And I, the just individual individuals are driving this. Uh, they they are adopting it um, and and using it for work. The the adoption rate of of these large language models has blown the doors off of, you know, essentially every other technology that we've that we've developed. Uh, I mean, ChatGPT, I don't know what the numbers are. They've got well over 100 million users. Um, and and they've got to be closing in on, uh, I don't know. I, they got to be getting close to a billion. I mean, just in terms of users. And, you know, that was something that took, you know, Facebook years to do. And, and you know, so, this This thing is happening, and it's not gonna it's 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 not gonna be held off if I can if you don't mind uh, me me making a pivot here and talking about so we i'm I'm very encouraged by all of this there is there is something however that I think threatens to throw real sand in the gears and it's something I'm spending more time writing about i I, I did something for the dispatch and I'm talking about it publicly more and that's how our kind of partners so particularly our, our European friends are are approaching this whole thing. Um, I think if I were to put myself in their shoes, I think the governing philosophy is, um, one, a very acute desire not to miss out on this tech boom the way they have on previous ones. I think they do recognize, governments recognize, like these are the techs that, that are going to be shaping economies and societies and militaries and, and, and all of it. And they're right. Um, the problem is, is that they seem to have concluded. And when I say they, I'm, I'm talking about the EU and, 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 and similar countries. Although we're, we're seeing this move into like the, the Indo-Pacific as well. So South Korea and uh, the Philippines and, and else, elsewhere. But they, they seem to have concluded that they either have to constrain the presence of U.S. technology providers or in some cases actually like cut them out, like decouple from us um, if they are to realize um, their own kind of domestic innovation uh, goals, which I think is fundamental. So I have a, I have a market response to that, which I think is just, I think they're just fundamentally wrong. Um, But then I have a national security motivation behind this too. And that is the United States has concluded rightly, I think, that the only way we're gonna navigate this new kind of techno world that we're living in is, and you mentioned globalization, that you know, some of that's breaking down because of security issues. I've talked previously about how you know securing nations means securing networks, and securing networks means securing supply chains. Well, the way the US is responding to that is to try and build these alliances, these kind of technology alliances, with our closest democratic friends, where we create these, you know, mutually reinforcing trusted and resilient supply chains amongst each other. And the idea is, is that if we do that well, then you know we, we facilitate each other's innovation bases and, and, and our economies become um, stronger as well. And we treat it the way NATO treats military interoperability, right? So the U.S. helps our NATO friends become more capable, from a military perspective, and interoperable with us. And we understand that that's important for collective defense. Well, what the USG is trying to do now from a foreign policy standpoint in these types of new techno alliances is a similar thing. We understand that we're all made more resilient, more wealthy, more safe to the degree that our innovation bases are you know, thriving and interoperable. Okay, so that's all throat-clearing for the point that, unfortunately, a lot of, of our European friends are going the opposite direction. And they're actually enacting legislation and, and regulatory schemes that are very clearly aimed at constraining US, um, U.S. providers. Not only is that unfair, not only does it work against U.S. kind of policy goals, but it's actually, and I do think it's inadvertent, but it's still very real, it opens the door to Chinese alternatives, because, what? Because number one, Europe has killed their own innovation base. They've smothered that thing in a blanket of regulatory action, and th- that's been true for decades, and it's not changing. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, two, they, they are so deliberately targeting American companies that they write the regulations in such a way as to where they only apply, you know, it has to be a, of a certain market share or a certain number of users. Right now, where Chinese companies operate in those markets, they fall below all those hurdles. And so they come in and they seize the opportunity. And so what this looks like, fast forward, if we're not careful, is a subsidized uh, large language model being run by ByteDance or Tencent or Alibaba, being heavily subsidized by the Chinese government the way that Huawei and ZTE and DJI drones and others are, gaining traction in the US or European marketplaces because they work well enough and they're way cheaper. And we're repeating all the same mistakes that I'm constantly droning on about with Huawei and TikTok and all that kind of stuff. But on, on a technology that I think is even more influential and important and is going to essentially touch everything. So that was me you know, in my kind of long-winded way of like, look, this is what I actually think is, is kind of the, uh, the new kind of technological great game and the stuff that really matters. Uh, from a foreign policy perspective, even more than the individual capabilities that may evolve, it's the it's the kind of larger currents geopolitically that I think are driving all this that really matter.
1: Yeah, no, like I'm I'm with you on the pause thing. Like, if you could get total global buy-in that says, "Hey, we're going to pause this for 18 months while we have seminars in nice hotels and talk about what this all means." That be one thing, but that's not going to happen, right? I mean, and um, and so the choice isn't to have or not have AI. The choice is to have China leading the way in AI or America leading the way in AI or America and its allies, whatever, right? And that's um, I think that bothers a lot of people who you know the sort of the Tucker Carlson mindset is we didn't get to vote on this, we didn't get to decide, you know, why do we have to have these changes? The problem with that is that like, freaking life imposes a lot of changes, and um, um, and I I'm sort of with Tyler Callan and 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 you and others on this is that if this technology is inevitably coming down the pike, and I think it's obvious that it is, it sh- it should emerge and be dominant, or dominated by open democratic societies with the rule of law rather than crappy authoritarian regimes that, um, and and personalist reg- regimes that, you know, I mean, look, R- R- Russia's not exactly, I think, in the race right now for good AI, but a country that literally has a military model that says, let's use our soldiers to, as like, bury them in an enema to figure out where <laughs> the enemy is and have them all get slaughtered. They're not thinking about like the about human dignity and the, the autonomy of the individual. Maybe we're not thinking about that stuff enough, but we're thinking about a hell of a lot more than than those kinds of countries. And and that's the choice. And I, I just think that gets kind of lost. And
0: yeah, I mean, a lot of this comes down to your to to use one of your phrases um, comes down to your priors. You know, like your understanding of of human nature and of you know what your, whatever your foreign policy worldview this is going to shape how you think through these things. And, you know, while I think some of the apocalyptic language, literally people using the word apocalypse uh, associated with this technology is way overblown and 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 not helpful. That doesn't mean that truly awful things can't happen or, or that this technology can't or won't be used for those truly awful things. And Part of the European problem is they seem to be making this moral equivalency between the United States and China, where they, they literally treat American companies the same as a, in terms of their concerns or threats or, any, or perceptions as they do Chinese companies. I think that's just categorically wrong. I think that is just fundamentally wrong. Um, but I think that we're at a moment now where what we think about this stuff and what we do about it, more importantly, really does matter. And if we manage this well, and when I say we, I don't mean the government per se. I just mean kind of society writ large. But if if we if we think about this and and take some what I view to be obvious steps, well, then the likelihood of some truly wonderful outcomes goes up, and our opportunity to constrain some truly horrific outcomes also goes up. And I think that's good. I want to do those things both for our own national thriving. And just for the dignity of people around the world writ large. So these this kind of stuff matters to me. All right. So one last
1: point. Well, first of all, like I so I don't think we've actually told people what some of the possible blue sky good news in this, right? I mean, like the bad news thing, I mean, I, I think is right about this, is like since the story of Prometheus, like human beings love the Frankenstein monster story, the ghost in the machine story. If you start, I mean, what'll be really interesting for future historians of popular culture is to look at how much of popular culture was dominated by talk of AI before there was any serviceable AI. I mean, I can think of a dozen movies and TV shows off the top of my head. Um, And, but like, you know, What are the, what, you know, like, what are the three things that, I mean, I, I gotta get a pet on here soon for his book, but like, what are three or four things that like you think actually will make the world a better place because of AI and in a way that, you know, for everybody.
0: So I'll, I'll use, I'm doing this live right now, but uh, I'll talk about education. I'll talk about uh, healthcare and maybe work more broadly. I don't know. Um, So in terms of education, you know, look, your students of all, n- number one, so so traditional students, you know, high school and below or college and below, they really are going to have the capability of having a tailor-made tutor at their beck and call who doesn't get annoyed with them and who is able to increasingly over the course of time, instruct them and and kind of lead them down a path of learning that's tailor-made for kind of, how they learn and and consume knowledge, um, that's going to apply to everything. From you know, you and I have been talking about foreign languages, but it's going to you know economics and the the barriers to entry um, to learning new skills and and gaining new knowledge and and, and just getting up to speed uh, are going to be are going to be lower. Now, some will argue rightly so that, um, okay, before, before there was, you know, Google search, people had to read a book, you know, and, and that, like that type of engagement kind of encoded knowledge in a deeper, more sustainable way than a, than a, than a, than a search engine, uh, Google or search engine effort looks or does. Well, yes, yes. And no, um, if, if all you're doing is Googling, then, okay, sure, that's not the same as reading a book, but that's not what people typically do. Um, you use that to surface information and then you engage with the information. Now, again, reading online and versus a tangible book, th- those are all meaningful distinctions that really do matter. But what we're moving into now is, is a phase where in a, in, a, in a single interface, you are moving into a type of dialogue, dialectic engagement with an, I don't want to call it an entity, a tool that um, that is really powerful and can surface information and serve it to you in a way that makes it more accessible. I, I'm confident that that won't all be a net positive, that there'll be costs to some of that. But there will be a lot of positives to it. Um, and, you know, kind of transitioning to the second point in terms of what that means in terms of like work. Well, that's going to make we, we always talk about how, how modern employees and professionals are going to have to be lifelong learners. Well, this is how that happens. Um, this is, this is going to be one of the key mechanisms that actually enables someone to be a lifelong learner, um, in a, in a way that is, um, efficient and productive. And I think that, I think that just has tons and tons of, of positive implications. Not only positive implications, but just a lot. And then finally, on a healthcare thing, AI in general has always has already demonstrated that it's going to have a massive impact on you know, research. But then even in terms of diagnostics, I mean, we, we've got diag- diagnostic AIs that are so outperforming humans that, it's, that it, I mean, it's, it's just not even close to being a fair fight. And the positive life implications of finding cancer six months earlier um, alone, just that one example to me is, is so mind-blowingly positive. You know, um, the, the, the opportunities to discover, um, new treatments and, um, uh, new procedures using AI, uh, I think is, is, is so real and, and so life affirming that, um, I just think I just think this is a net good. I, I, we don't live in a comic book, so this is where I, this is the world viewpoint. We don't live in a comic book where there are 100 percent villains and one hundred percent heroes. That's just not how this stuff works. Um, and we don't always get to make the trades in terms of we'll take eighty percent of the good you know and 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 shave off ten percent of the bad. Unfortunately, that's not how this works. What I would say is that over the course of history, our culture has been i think the most responsible in navigating technological evolution and and kind of inculcation into the culture and i think we're the best position to do that now this is happening you know wishful thinking or 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 a refusal to accept that does nothing to change the the underlying realities and so what i would rather do is um explicitly understand and pursue the good and explicitly understand and seek to diminish the negative to the degree that we can.
1: I'm, I'm with you on all that. I, I, it, it's, it's one of these funny things where I think like the, if you describe the actual possibilities objectively, you would think the left would be much more into AI than the right. Now, as far as I can tell, pro and anti AI stuff does not really track in a a clean ideological way to begin with. There are lots of right-wingers who are against it. There are lots of left-wingers who are for it. But like, it seems to me that, so just to put my cards on the table, some of the things I'm most excited about, about AI, I mean, I get the education thing. I'll believe it when I see it. You know, people said a lot of great stuff about how the internet was going to empower education. It didn't, Um, at least not in the ways that people thought it was going to, right? I mean, like Khan Academy is awesome, but like it didn't break the, ed school monopoly and all these things that people thought it was going to do. Um, all that said, um, like I want to live in really pretty cities, right? And the combination of being like, people don't know, this is one of these weird things is like, we actually don't have the knowledge in sufficient number of people like masons and stone people and you know, that kind of stuff to make the beautiful buildings that were commonplace,ly you know, built in the 19th century in 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 New York and Chicago and 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 all across Europe. Never mind ones from the 15th century. AI can solve that kind of thing, so you don't have to have these things that look like prisons. You don't have to have these things where a, a you know, at a feet slice of the architecture industry decides what is aesthetically pleasing. I mean, there's there's no artistic area of life where normal people. More dislike the product of the elite that controls these things than architecture, right? Um, and so we can come up with new materials, make new things, figure out how to how to how to replicate old ways of doing things, but with modern safety standards and all that. That kind of stuff really excites me. Um, I agree with you with the diagnostic stuff. Also, I mean, this is a point I make all the time: is like if you just look at the amount of money we spend on things like Alzheimer's and Alzheimer's like diseases, if AI could just solve that, right? I mean, like, that would put millions of people out of work worth it, right? This is, this is just like, um, because nurses are going to find other people to take care of. If you're not going to die of Alzheimer's, you're going to die of something else. But the misery of those kinds of diseases and the cost of those kinds of diseases, hundreds of billions of dollars that we're spending on that, that's not productive for people. And I don't mean to be cruel about it, but for people who are clearly not productive anymore because they can't even remember their names sometimes. Right. So I I, like the whole point is if you can make them productive for another five, 10 years and then have them die of a heart attack, that's a win for everybody. Right. And it's those kinds of things that will break monopolies. Yeah. The radiologists are in trouble. Um, But uh, so be it. You know, that all I think is great. The thing and I'm sorry to monologue here, but just I'll give you the last word on this. The thing that does worry me And I don't know how to address it. I don't know even now fully how to think about it is uh, over the year, you know, over the years I've come more and more around to the view that while I still think ideas are hugely important, right? Ideas matter, ideas move the world, all that stuff. I still believe that stuff, but things do too, right? Material culture really has a generative effect on the ideas that are in play and on the self-conception of ourselves in our place in the universe and all that right and so like my standard line is the car did more to this to 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 uh, disrupt stable communities than any ideas that came out of some german lab right but you can argue with nietzsche you can't argue with the Buick, right um similarly we just saw cato just had this weird poll which said that and i i think there are real problems i mean cato does good polling i'm not trying to criticize cato but like This weird poll that said like a third of Gen Z or whatever the young people are supposed to be called now um, are comfortable with the idea of government placed cameras in our homes to prevent bad things from happening or something. Now, I don't believe that that's actually a real number in the sense that if we started to debate it, that number would go down, not up. People, kids are probably screwing with the pollsters. I mean, there's all sorts of things that could be going on there. But even if it's directionally right, one of the reasons why is when you raise kids in a, in a, in a universe, in a society that is just drenched in cameras and performative cameras that you sort of, you know, you have in your pocket and you're taking selfies 25 times a day. And that, and being performative on YouTube is a way to become a celebrity and all these kinds of things. The material technological culture is shaping people's character. And I don't know what, AI does to people's character. If, if all you ever have to do is ask interesting creative questions and not actually do the math yourself, what kind of people does that produce? And I don't have an answer for that. It could be great. You know, Star Trek thinks it works out great for everybody. But I don't know that that's right.
0: Yeah. And unless and I be called a, a techno idealist, which I'm not, the underlying points that you're drawing out now very much concern me. So AI and all of its attendant kind of outcomes, for example, this whole metaverse thing, the kind of virtual world, like this could be this could be meaningfully made more compelling and realistic in some perspective uh, of, of living virtually. Our our friend Ah, uh, Levin has commented on like that is not a good thing, like that individuals living more isolated lives and increasingly inhabiting worlds that they control uh, and define. Um, that is not that is not going to be good. Uh, that is going to have very significant real negative outcomes. Um, similarly, I've thought about this even for myself as, as I've used. You know some of these foundation models to do, you know some of the writing that I described previously. You know, there's there's a real utility in staring at a blank page and going through the effort of like forcing a thought out of your brain and onto a piece of paper and and the labor that that requires and and that is a that is a value in and of itself. It's brain shaping, and I get nervous about well if I don't ever do that again. I don't think that's good for me, you know, and, and, and what's the, what's the net impact of language over the course of time? Like I have the benefit and you certainly have the benefit of a long history of writing. Right. And so I can, I can kind of coast off of that while I use this tool, my kids don't. And if, if they start from day one, using this and building out, there's, there just comes a point where that kind of, that history, that, that kind of um, the muscle memory, right yeah, the yeah. That, that just disappears. It just goes away, and we've all been shaped by the tech rather than us shaping the tech itself. And that that that's a concerning that's a concerning reality for me. So I, I do not think that this is a um, an unalloyed good. Um, I, but I also don't believe in unalloyed goods, at least for the most part, right? I, I just don't think that that's a real option for me. So the fact that that that, that, that what we're talking about isn't that doesn't surprise me and it certainly doesn't dissuade me completely. It does, it it does rightly caution me and, and prevents me from being um, uh, you know, Pollyannish about all this. Um, I'm essentially kind of taking the cards that have been dealt and looking for the best possible hand, recognizing that there's some risk here that I don't get to avoid. And with
1: that, we'll call it a day. I'm, uh Klon, it it's great to have you back. I hope you'll come back more. I mean we we, we didn't even talk about like Ukraine stuff and you know that's, that's worth talking about. But uh and I you know I'm, I'm glad you're thriving over there in that you know like Scrooge McDuck um in in the private sector but uh but you're always part of the family so it's great to have you.
0: It's my pleasure. I love spending time with you guys and I would love to come back anytime you'll have me. All right so Klon Kitchen has left the Studio, um,
1: and uh, it's just great to see Clon. You know, one of the great things about the last few years is, you know, you don't get a lot of new friends who feel like old friends, and Clon's one of them. And while we were sort of crestfallen to see have him leave the Dispatch, I'm re- I am actually am legitimately glad that he is thriving in what he is doing. Um, and uh, and again, he works for uh, Beacon Global Strategies, and he does stuff with big consulting gigs. And I don't know, you know, I, but the one thing I'm very confident in is that, that Klein kitchen is probably one of the most ethical human beings in the world. So if anybody thinks that like he's talking his book, I just think you're, you're wrong. And he knows a lot about a lot in this area and he does his homework. And um, so I thought it was useful to have him on um, and we will have him back. And uh, other than that, Uh, looking forward to the dispatch meetup in Houston next week. I believe it is filled to the gills or to the rafters or whatever the correct phrasing is so much. So, I mean, that's the thing about these meetups is they fill up before we even have to start doing promotion of them. Um, but, uh, which means we should do more of them as a business thing. Um, but really looking forward to seeing people out there and, um, other than
0: that, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. ChatGPT says this is a podcast.